0: Thank you, Dan and choir for beautiful music this morning. If you're watching by way of television, you want to be back tonight at 12th and Tyler at First Baptist Church for Come to the Cross. You do not need a ticket. If you're here in the sanctuary, you will be back tonight. If you're watching by way of television, you see about half the choir. We have an 11 o'clock service with another choir. Tonight, both those choirs will be coming together, about 100 voices and an orchestra. And it'll be a very powerful presentation of the crucifixion of our Lord. You want to be here tonight at 6 o'clock at 12th and Tyler. No ticket needed. You just come on, come early and get a good seat. Uh, here at First Baptist Church at 6 o'clock this evening. Turn your Bibles to John's Gospel, the 19th chapter, as we continue in our Johannine sermon series, John chapter 19. Look first at chapter 18, verse 39 and 40. But you have a custom, this is Pilate speaking, that I should release someone for you at the Passover, Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? Therefore they cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Jesus, at this point in the story, has already been arrested. He's been interrogated by both the Jewish and the Roman authorities. And following the custom of releasing a prisoner at the Passover feast, Pilate has already tried to get Jesus released. The crowd had cried out for this rebel, this insurrectionist named Barabbas. No, no, give us Barabbas. So we continue in chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Now, scourging a prisoner before execution, was standard practice in the rough world that existed under Roman rule. Oddly enough, on this particular occasion, however, the prisoner wasn't whipped in order to hasten his death. Rather, Pilate hoped, by having Jesus scourged, that the bloodthirsty crowd would be satisfied he could actually get Jesus released. In fact, Luke gives us a clearer picture of Pilate's intentions when he says, Pilate says, I will therefore punish him and release him. Pilate thinks that he can satisfy the bloodthirsty crowd by having Jesus whipped 39 lashes. The law said you could not give more than 40, so they only counted 39 in case they miscounted. They hadn't broken the law. It was leather whips. Pieces of bone and iron to rip the flesh. And so they begin to beat Jesus. It was a public occasion. The prisoner was tied to a post. It was shame as much as it was physical pain. And they humiliate and beat our Lord. I want you to notice the subject of those verbs. Pilate took Jesus and Pilate scourged him. Of course, we know that it's the Roman soldiers who actually took Jesus and scourged him. There's an interesting play here in John's Gospel. Throughout the story, Pilate tries to back away from the crucifixion and say, I'm not responsible for this. And yet John uses him as a subject. He took Jesus and he whipped Jesus. Pilate's trying to distance himself from the crucifixion. And John is pushing him to the cross and making him A guilty man. Well, verse one is scourged. Verse two is crowned. Crowned. Look at verse two. And the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. Interestingly enough, John spends little time letting us hear about the physical pain that our Lord endured. Alternatively, he lets us know about the humiliation. And the shame that our Lord endured. Well, if he's claiming to be a king, he surely should have a crown, shouldn't he? But his crown was not made of precious metal or precious stones. Rather, it was a, a date palm woven together. The spikes could be long and they push it down on his brow and they pierce his brow. It's a mockery of our Messiah. Hey, hey, if he wants to be a king, let's give him a crown. And so they push that upon our Lord, and they pierce his brow. Well, continuing the parody, they call for a purple robe. Every king ought to be adorned in royal colors. Let's give him a garment of purple. It is a parody of a royal coronation. Everything about John's account is kingship. He has a crown. He has a robe. Let's give him a purple robe. And Matthew adds even one more element, that he's given a scepter, a reed. But he does not rule with this reed. Rather, in Matthew's gospel, they take it and they whack and they beat him further still with the rule, the reed. Yes, it's a parody of kingship. Then verse 3, humiliated. Look at verse 3. They began to come up to him and say, Hail, king of the Jews! And gave him blows in the face. Now we're adding vocals to visuals. The purple robe is visual, the crown is visual, the scepter is visual, and now the vocals to the visuals they begin to add. They drop an E and they say, Hail, King of the Jews! It's likened to Hail Caesar. It's a praise reserved for the king. But in lieu of the kiss of loyalty, they give him a slap on the face. They belt him over and over with a kiss of the fist. All this combines to make mockery of Jesus as a clown king, a clown crown, a a clown robe, a clown scepter, a clown king. This must be the greatest irony of all the ages. Now, you think about what's happening here. The Roman soldiers think we have a Jewish upstart, a political figure, an insurrectionist like Barabbas, someone claiming to be Messiah, someone wanting to overthrow the Roman rule. And so they put the crown on him, they put the robe on him, they give him the scepter, they slap his face, they drop a knee and make mockery of the clown king and say, "Hell, king of the Jews. And yet the greatest irony is that in fact they have dropped the knee to the Lord of the cosmos. He is the king. He will wear diadems. He is the king of the entire cosmos, and they think they're making mockery of one who would call himself king, and yet they have knelt before the Lord of lords and the king of kings. It gives me chills to think about them taking the knee and thinking it's a mockery, and yet they do not realize they have spoken the truth. Hell, King of the Jews. They make mockery of our Messiah, trying to humiliate him, and that moment crowning him as king. It reminds us, however, of what Paul writes in Philippians. More on that tonight. That there'll be a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess those who are in heaven and those who are on earth and yes, even those under the earth will one day bow the knee and confess hail King of the Jews. Yes, what they do now, they will do again on that day and they will realize that one whom they made a clown of, was indeed the king of the cosmos. Four and five, we learn that he's innocent. And Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know I find no guilt in him. Jesus, therefore, came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said, Behold the man. Yes, it's a proclamation of innocence. Seeing Jesus scourged and mocked, Pilate hopes the crowd will be satisfied and let him go. He comes out wearing the royal robe and Pilate declares, behold the man. It reminds us of an echo of John the Baptist earlier in this gospel who said when his cousin Jesus comes to the river, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. Behold the man, behold the lamb. And it reminds us of the words of Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 53, the man of sorrows. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, but he appeared to them as a man of suffering, the pierced brow, the beaten face, familiar with pain, and like one from whom the people hide their faces. Behold the man, of suffering and sorrow. The shouts, verse six, crucify him, crucify him. Therefore, the chief priests and officers saw him. They cried out, crucify, crucify. And Pilate said, take him yourselves for I find no guilt in him. Pilate pushing the guilt to the Jews. And Pilate was trying to prove to the crowd that he didn't need to die. He failed miserably. Rather than relenting, they called for the Christ to be crucified. And Pilate's pronouns are emphatic. What he says is something like this. I myself find no fault in him, so you yourself crucify him. I'll have nothing to do with it, Pilate is trying to say. Well, in verse 7, we learn the real reason. The Jews said, we have a law, and by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Verse 7, I call the religious reason. Before, they had trumped up political charges against Jesus, and now they tell the truth. He's claiming to be the Son of God, and he was, and therefore, if he's not the Son of God, he needs to die. And they did not think that he was the Son of God. Verses 8 and 9, I call afraid. Afraid, look at those. When Pilate therefore heard this statement, he was the more afraid. and neared the praetorium again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate was afraid. Now, Pilate wasn't an overly religious man to be sure, but he was somewhat unsettled at the thought of crucifying someone who had divine claims all about them. In fact, Matthew gives us an interesting twist to the story when he says that Pilate's wife had had a nightmare the night before, and she said to Pilate, Don't you have anything to do? With the crucifixion, this righteous man, for I suffered terribly in a dream about him. Pilate. Was disturbed, his wife had had a nightmare. this man is righteous and he seems to be something un- uh, uneasy about this man and this situation. and Pilate is all the f- more afraid. The Roman ruler is rattled. and wants no part in the process of crucifying Christ. But notice, Jesus is silent. Look at the end of verse 9. But Jesus gave him no answer. The silence of our Savior was deafening to Pilate. Where are you from? Translation, are you a God? Are you a man? Answer me. Where are you from? From above, look at 10 and 11, from above. Pilate therefore said to him, you do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and I have the authority to crucify you? Twice in that one verse, Pilate tries to play his own power. He's unsettled and he's afraid. He's trying to remind himself, hey, you're the one making the decisions here. How dare you not speak to me? I'm the one, I can have you crucified, I can have you released. How will you not speak to me? I have the authority. And Jesus says, no, the authority is from above. Look at verse 11. You have no authority over me unless it be given you from above for this reason. He who delivered me up, a reference to Judas or Caiaphas, could go either way. To you, he has the greater sin. Verse 12 Release him. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. The Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you have no friend to Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Even more superstitious now and afraid of this silent prisoner who will not respect his authority and acts as if pilate has no power pilate wants to release him but the jews remind him tiberius is a little bit uneasy himself these days that is the roman emperor in fact This Jesus is claiming to be the king. He's in competition with Tiberius. And if you don't crucify him, we'll get word to Tiberius, your boss, the the Roman emperor, that you're letting others claim to be king other than him. In verse 13, the judgment seat. When Pilate therefore heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat on the judgment seat at the place called the pavement, which is Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now, I want to give you a different look at this passage probably than you've ever had before. In the Greek text, it is unclear who is seated on the judgment seat. The verb could go with either Pilate or with Jesus is normally translated that Pilate sits on the judgment seat and makes the judgment. Well, think about it another way. The verb could just as easily go with Jesus. What if Pilate now sits the one called King of the Jews on his judgment seat, and there sits Jesus, the mockery of the Messiah, seated on the judgment seat, as if Pilate wants to get at them one more time? He knows Now they've played the political card of knowing Tiberius and sending the word, and he must crucify this would-be, should-be Christ. So what if he seats Jesus on the throne, making the mockery all the more, and yet trying to infuriate the Jews? What an irony that would be that the one who will one day sit on the judgment seat is sitting on the judgment seat. The one who is crowned with a crown of thorns will one day wear the diadems. The one in the purple robe will one day be clothed in the glory of God. The one now seated on the judgment seat of Rome will one day sit on the judgment seat of the cosmos. It's a last moment of mockery Of Jesus. 14, behold your king. That was the day of the preparation of Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. Little did Pilate know that he'd actually declared the greatest truth of the cosmos. Jesus was their king. The crowd will have nothing to do with it. Verse 15, I call away with him. Look at it. And they therefore cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. The hypocrisy of it all. The Jews are supposed to have a theocracy where God was the king. And now... Those who are supposed to never follow an earthly king are declaring for political purposes, we have no king but Caesar. It's the truth at this point. Their hearts have been sold out to the worldly ways and God was no longer on the throne of their heart, but rather Rome was. They have become friends of Caesar. In verse 16, so he then delivered him, handed him over to them to be crucified. It's the Romans that are actually doing the deadly deed, but John wants you to know the responsibility is also with the Jews that he's handed over to the Jews, for they have the ones who have cried out for his crucifixion. In verse 17, carrying his own cross, They took Jesus there for him. They went out, bearing his own cross to the place called a place of the skull, which is in Hebrew, Golgotha. Golgotha means a place of the skull. We use the Latin translation Calvary, which also means place of the skull. It's the depiction of the shape of the hill, most likely imagine jesus now carrying his own cross beam the horizontal element the vertical element stayed in the ground the prisoner would carry the horizontal element of the cross on his shoulders and then be hoisted up for crucifixion even as jesus carries his own wooden beam our minds flash back to genesis 22 when Isaac, a type of Christ, carries his own wood for his almost sacrifice. And this time, the sacrifice goes through unlike it did with the son of Abraham. With the son of God, God asked Abraham to be willing to do what God actually did. Verse 18, one on each side. And they crucified him. And with him, two other men on either side, and Jesus in between. The center was usually the the place of greatest honor on this occasion. The center is the place of greatest shame. All the pilgrims who were there for the Passover, crowding the city, could most focus on the one in the center one on each side, they're more than mere robbers. It's the word for an insurrectionist. It's the word used for Barabbas earlier, ones who are going against the government of Rome. One on each side. It reminds us of Isaiah 53, which says the Messiah was numbered among the transgressors. One on each side. And then 19 through 22 which Brad always read to you, we have the inscription. Right above the head of Jesus, a placard was placed, which read, Jesus the Nazarene, King of the Jews. This king motif has been kept up here to the very end from the mockery of the crown and the robe and the scepter, from the questions from Pilate, are you the king? to Jesus' own admission that indeed it is, as Pilate says, he is a king, to now the placard placed ahead of the cross, Jesus, the Nazarene, king of the Jews. Written in three languages so everybody could read it. Hebrew, so the Jews could read it. Greeks, so the Gentiles could read it. Latin, so the empire could read it. This trilingual placard was saying that, indeed, he is the kingliest of all. He is king of the cosmos, king of all peoples, whatever their language. The Jews go to Pilate and say, don't put that up there. Don't put he's the king of the Jews. Well, they had pushed Pilate into a corner They had sort of humiliated him by saying they would cry out to Tiberius if he didn't crucify this upstart rebel named Jesus. So Pilate puts king of the Jews up there to anger the Jews and humiliate them again. And he says, know what I have written, I have written. Irony is, it's right. He is indeed the real king. And then the garments, verse 23 through 24. The soldiers, therefore, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also a tunic. Now, the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. They decided, in verse 24, not to split the valuable tunic up, but rather they draw straws for it, cast lots for it. And notice the end of verse 24. It's a fulfillment of of what had been written in Psalm 22. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. They divvy up the garments at Golgotha. It was a payment perk for the bloody business of crucifixion to cash in on the clothing of the crucified. But God is in control And all that is happening fulfills the writing of the psalmist. For my clothing they cast lots. (laughs) Therefore the soldiers did these things, verse 25, 25 through 27, his characters at the cross. Therefore the soldiers did these things, but there were standing by the cross. Look who's there. His mother. His mother's sister, which would be an aunt on his mother's side. Mary, the wife of Clopas. Now, Clopas is said to be Joseph's brother, so this is most likely another aunt of Jesus from Joseph's side. That's a likely scene, isn't it? Jesus being crucified, the ones that stay closest are the women in the family, his mother and two aunts. And then there's one more character, Mary of Magdalene. You see the irony, don't you? How many soldiers are they crucifying him? There are four. They divide the garments into four pieces. There are four soldiers at the foot of the cross, but don't only see the bad characters. Now John draws your attention in contrast to the four men who are crucifying him. There are four women who are brave and faithful from his family. Jesus sees his mother Verse 26, and he says, woman, behold your son. It's the words he'd used in chapter 2 at the wedding at Cana when Mary came to her. He called her woman there, and now he wants his mother to be taken care of. He still loves her. John, will you take care of my mom? Mom, will you look to John? to be your son. Why didn't he hand her over to his own brothers? For they did not yet believe that he was the Christ. And John, the beloved disciple, did. Jesus redefines family along the terms of obedience to the gospel rather than bloodlines and calls for marriage to be the mother, and John to be the son. And then finally, 28 through 30, it is finished. And Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge of sour wine, put a branch of hyssop, and brought it up to his mouth. When Jesus therefore received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head he gave up the spirit. The Jesus of John's account is always in control. Now he fulfills another passage by asking for the wine. It reminds us all the way back to Exodus chapter 12 when a hyssop branch is used to take the blood of the Passover lamb and, and put it on the doorpost so that when the death angel comes, it will pass over the households of Israel. And now that same hyssop branch is used, and it's not the Passover lamb, but it's the real lamb of God. And they put upon the sponge the sour wine. It reminds us of Jesus in the garden saying, this cup I will drink, the cup of the wrath of God over sin. And then those words that proclaim victory, it is finished. All that the Father has sent me to do, I have done. I have been obedient. The verb is in the perfect tense. Something happened, and yet the results go on for all eternity. There's a moment in time when he dies on the cross. It is finished. It is complete. Sin is paid for. And yet it moves forever with the results. Jesus accomplished all all that God sent him to accomplish and he could declare in victory. The other gospel writers say he shouts it out. It is finished. The thing he dreaded the most in Gethsemane is done. From the moment of birth to the moment of death, he has been completely obedient to the Father. Even Paul writes, obedient to death on the cross. He is king in every language. He will wear crowns, diadems of great value. He will be clothed more than in a purple robe in the light of the glory of God. And every knee will bow. Those dead, those alive, those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, and every tongue will confess He is King, He is Lord. Do you need to do that today? Do you need to come and call the one on the cross, the crucified Christ, your Lord? For in dropping a knee, the soldiers have the greatest irony in all of human history. Hail King the Jews. They praise the one who created the cosmos. He was faithful for you all the way to the cross, and now he calls you to come and follow him. Let's pray. Oh God, what an unspeakable story! How unbelievably powerful. the king ends up on a throne on a cross. The one who mockingly sits in the judgment seat will one day sit in the judgment seat. and The question will be one, have we called Jesus Lord? Have we recognized that we are sinners and we need a Savior and we need to make what he did on that cross ours? By saying, He died for me. I'm a sinner. I have no pride. I need a Savior. Amen.